Our world is bombarded with negative influences. From music to television, movies, peers in the news. Negative influences are pretty well everywhere in our society. As we read the Bible, we find that God expects his people to counteract this negative influence by being a a positive or a godly influence on those around them. In fact, God explicitly told the prophet Jeremiah that he was to influence those around him so that they would turn back to the Lord. But he was not to allow them to influence him. God still expects his people to have this kind of influence in the world Around us. Now, every one of us, we have a sphere of influence. These are people that we interact with on a regular basis. They can be our friends, they can be our relatives, they can be other parents in our child's social activities, they can be people that are part of the same civic organization that we are, they can be the people who live around us. But we have interaction with them. Obviously, some of these folks will be Christians. But all of us could look within the people within our sphere of influence, and we could think of several who are not. And and these are people that that God expects us to try to influence for Jesus Christ. I mean, and the thing is, every one of us has influence with someone else. I mean, unless you live in a cave, and are a hermit, and you just come down to do your grocery shopping and then go back to your cave and never talk to other people. You interact with other people and you you influence them. You have the ability to influence them. And and this is a good thing. It is good to have an influence on others. But what we want to do is be sure that we are having a godly influence on them. So the question is, how do we, how can I be a godly influence? What difference does a godly influence make? That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 2. That is page 885. If you have a pew Bible, when you find that, I'll ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse two, Paul says, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Do not say this to condemn. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. The title of the message this morning is How to Be a Godly Influence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Father, we do live in a world with negative influences. Father, we deal with it on a daily basis. And Lord, we want to be godly influences. We want to to be a positive influence on the world around us. So today, help us to learn from your word how we can do this and why this is so important. God is, Father, that your word would sink deep into our hearts and it would bring change into our life and that we would leave here today and that we would be determined that we would be a godly influence. I mean, to the very best of our abilities, we would be a godly influence on those within our sphere of influence, Father. 
Father, fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech to to speak your word and your way. Let it be you that we hear and not me. We need you, God, to work in our hearts. We need you to strengthen us, to encourage us, to fill us, to make us go out and be lights that shine brightly for Jesus. Be glorified in how we listen. Be glorified in how we respond. And let us just make a difference in the world around us. We ask this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. The church at Corinth was a church Paul had spent a great deal of time with and had spent a great deal of time on. And they had a lot of issues. And where he's talking to them today, one of the issues they had was they they were allowing false teachers to come into the church and begin to influence them away from Jesus Christ. And what Paul is doing is he is beginning to try to call them away from that, to try to call them uh, away from the false teachers and and to come back to follow Jesus, to to come out and be separate, he says earlier, from among, come out and be separate from them and, and commit themselves once again to following Jesus. Now, Paul's desire for them to turn away from the false teachers, right? his motivation is important to us. His motivation isn't because he's worried about losing, say, financial support from them. They weren't supporting him financially. Paul isn't concerned about what other people might think if a church he planted turned and went after false teachers. He's not worried about his reputation. Paul is working to try to draw them away from the false teachers because he knows the significance. He knows what will happen if they turn away from Jesus and they begin to follow the false teachers. Paul knows that their eternal destiny, it hinges on whether they follow Jesus or whether they follow the false teachers. And so he is trying to to draw them away. So they can be saved. But Paul is not trying to command them so much as he's trying to influence them. He has a relationship with him. They know him. He knows them. And he is trying to leverage that relationship to influence them away from false teachers and toward Jesus Christ. Because Paul knows that a godly influence, that it can have an eternal Significance. It can mean something eternally for them. And so the main thing I want you to know today is this. So that godly influence can make an eternal difference. A godly influence can make an eternal difference. And, and this, I think, is always so important for us to remember. Our seeking to influence people for Jesus, it's never about Glory. It's not so that we can say, look what I did. It's not so that we can... We're we're not having a friend day next week so that we can invite our friends in so that we can say, look how many people we had at church. It's not the issue. None of those things really ultimately matter. The thing is, we want to influence people for Jesus because it is eternally significant. Whether one follows Jesus or not, that is an eternally significant issue. Eternity hangs on the on the line on whether or not one follows Jesus Christ. So we always want to keep the weight of that on our minds. And that is why we want to be a godly influence on those within our sphere of influence. But how do we do that? How do we go about being such a godly influence that we can make an eternal difference? Well, this passage shows us four ways. Number one, 
Genuinely love people. Genuinely love people. Paul says in verse 2, he, he calls on them to open their hearts to him. Now, this is important because if you look over at chapter 6 and verse 11, Paul says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, uh, you also be open. Right? So what Paul had said to him before was, listen, I love you. And that love is the basis of him calling them in these next few verses to come out from among the false teachers and be separate. And now he's telling them, you know that I love you. Love us back and just listen and trust what I have to say. Right. Paul, at this point, he's not trying to say, do what I say because I'm an apostle. Right. Paul isn't trying to use a lot of authority and say, I can command you to do this. Do what I say because of who I am and the authority I have as an apostle. Instead, what he's saying to them is, I love you and you know I love you. And because I love you, I want what's best for you. Just open your heart and remember how much I have loved you and how much you have loved me and come out. Right? He is basing all of this on the fact that they love him. He loves them. You know, the thing is, the people who will have the greatest influence in our lives are going to be people who genuinely care about us. I mean, wouldn't you think about the people who have influenced you in your life? Right? Chances are we have all had people that were had authority over us. Right? And if they had authority over us, they had a measure of influence. But were they really influential in our lives or did their influence end where their authority ended? And then think about people that cared about us. And, I mean, and we knew they cared about us. Weren't they far more influential I mean, didn't didn't we listen to what they had to say, even if we didn't like it, even if we didn't agree with it? We listened because we knew that they loved us. And honestly, we loved them, too. I mean, love and concern, genuine concern. This is the basis for real influence in somebody's life. You think about Jesus. What kind of ways did Jesus seek to influence his disciples? I mean, he was Lord and they knew he was Lord. But did he walk around and say, do this because I'm Lord? Or did he love them and serve them and then say, do as I have done? Well, he never really wielded authority. He just said, you know, I love you. This is what's best. Do what I say. And he calls on us to make to follow the same example. Look at what he said. He said, Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said, you know, that the rulers, the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him become your servant, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Right? Jesus said, in the world, people seek to influence through authority. I'm your boss. Do what I say. I hold something over you. Make this change. He said, but in, the, in my kingdom, kingdom I'm establishing, it's to be different. 
Instead of trying to to make change through authority and saying, I'm demanding it. He said, serve them, love them, set an example for them and lead them in that way. There is trying to make someone do something. I mean, it only has so much influence. Think about as a parent right now. I have authority over my kids and I can make them do pretty much anything that I want them to do. But eventually they're going to move out. And at some point that authority is gone. I can't make them do anything. But if I if I love them and they know that I love them, well, then I can still be an influence on them. Let me kind of give an example. It's not as significant as this. But earlier this year, my aunt passed away. And when my mom called to tell me that my aunt passed away, she said these two things. Before you come, trim your beard and cut your hair. Right? Now, I'm 42 years old. My mom can't actually make me do any of those things. Right? If I went without it, she couldn't ground me. She wasn't going to spank me. She can't take my allowance away. She can't take my car away. I mean, there was no authority over me at all. But guess what I did as soon as I hung up the phone? I went and trimmed my beard, and I went and cut my hair. Why? Because I love her and she loves me. She had no authority for me to make that decision, to make that change. But she influenced me because of love. The greatest way you will ever influence someone is to genuinely love them and for them to know it. You know, the old cliche says people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And it may be a cliche statement, but there is an awful lot of truth in that. One of the best ways, the greatest ways, we can ever be a godly influence that makes an eternal difference in somebody's life is just to genuinely love them. Secondly, live a life of integrity. The last of verse 2, Paul says, We've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've cheated no one. But Paul makes positive affirmations about his ministry and his time in Corinth. And likely, Paul is responding to accusations that were made against him by the false teachers. And so what Paul reminds them of is that he had lived a life of integrity among them. He said, we have wronged no one. Now, likely, the idea that he had wronged no one, it meant that he had not hurt anybody. He had not used his apostolic authority to be cruel or harsh or to just slam the hammer down on anyone. He had not corrupted anyone. We've not corrupted anyone, right? We, we taught you the way of truth accurately. My life and my teaching were consistent with the words of Jesus Christ and the gospel, and I have led you in the right path, and we have cheated no one. Paul didn't use his time there and his influence over them to gain financially from them. Right? And they knew it. Paul was saying this, and the idea is you know that I lived with integrity among you. And from what I understand, the same could not be said about the false teachers. False teachers often ruled their little flocks with an iron hand. And anyone that dared disagree with them, boom, it just came down hard upon them. The false teachers, well, they were false teachers. So obviously they corrupted people and they led them astray. False teachers did use their positions of influence in order to gain from the people. Paul said, I have not done that. Instead, I've just, I lived what I preached, and I was here among you with integrity. 
Listen, I'm pretty convinced that we cannot influence people without being men and women of integrity. Now, when we talk about integrity, it's important to understand that integrity is not the same as perfection. Right? Integrity is not being perfect. Integrity, it really, the best way to understand it is to understand integrity is the opposite of hypocrisy. Right? Integrity is being who you say you are. See, a hypocrite, hypocrites are actors. Right? Before Jesus took the term and made it have a negative connotation, a hypocrite just meant an actor, someone who was play pretending to be something else. Well, Jesus took it and he applied it to the religious leaders who play pretended to be religious and devoted to God, when in reality they were something vastly different. Right? They wanted people to see them for one thing, but in their hearts and in reality they were something different. Now, saying, I want to live for Jesus, but failing, that is not hypocrisy. That's just living in this world. That is being a, a fallen person redeemed by the grace of God. You're not going to be perfect. But saying, I really am not going to live for Jesus, but I want other people to think I am. Right? I want people to think I'm godly, so I'm going to put on a show. Out in public, I'm going to be all praise Jesus and oh, thank you, Jesus, and praise God this. But in private... Private, I'm going to be something vastly different. I'm not concerned with who I really am. I'm concerned with who I appear to be. That person is a hypocrite. And a hypocrite will always be found out. Look at what the Bible says. He who walks with integrity walks securely. But he who perverts his ways will become known. And basically, what the book of Proverbs says is this. You can't live a dual life forever. Eventually, people find out. And when people find out, you lose your ability to influence them. You know, the unbelievers in your sphere of influence, they don't expect you to be perfect. They really don't. What they expect is that you live what you profess to believe. Right? What, what they expect is that if you say Jesus is the most important thing, then daily you make decisions that reflect that Jesus is the most important thing. Now, they're okay if you stumble and mess up sometimes. But by and large, they want to see and they expect to see that it really does mean something to you. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that you're unbelieving, the unbelievers in our sphere of influence, I don't even think they need us to be perfect. You know, so many times we're afraid of them seeing us fail that we do become hypocrites because we put on a show. But what happens when we put on this big show of being perfect? Well, I think two things happen. One is, we set a false standard for them. And if they look at us, and they see that we never blow it. We never mess up. That it just appears that we are perfect. Here's what they're going to say. I could never do that. There is no way I would ever be able to achieve that standard. And then they're going to catch you being a hypocrite. And when they do, guess what happens? They're going to say, I knew it all along. There's nothing to that Jesus stuff. 
They don't need you to be perfect. They don't want you to be perfect. They want you to be real. They want you to live a life of integrity, to be who you claim to be. And a life of integrity is powerful. It's influential. I mean, there is a reason that for over 60 years, presidents, heads of state, and leaders from other countries have sought advice from Billy Graham. Right? Because for over 60 years, in the public eye, Billy Graham has never once been correctly or even falsely accused of having an inappropriate relationship with someone else. In over 60 years in the public eye, Billy Graham has, has never once been accused of using what he did to profit for himself. But never once in over 60 years has Billy Graham ever wavered in the truth of what the Bible and the gospel is. I mean, he has taken great care to ensure that those things could not be said about him. Right? I mean, he went to great lengths to ensure that the money was handled appropriately. So no one could say it was about Billy getting rich. He made a point to that, I mean, he would deal with things and with people of the opposite sex in such a way that no one could say Billy was having an inappropriate relationship. And he was always crystal clear about Jesus and the gospel. And that integrity is why CEOs and presidents and diplomats sought him out. You know, the fact is, many of the people that sought Billy Graham's advice did not agree with Billy Graham about Jesus and salvation. But they respected his integrity. And they knew he was who he claimed to be. Many of the people that are in our sphere of influence that are not followers of Christ, they are going to disagree with our position on any number of things. They really are. There is no way around that. If we're going to be faithful to the Bible, everybody ain't going to like that. That's just the way it is. But if we live what we claim to believe, even if they do not like our position, and even if they do not respect the position itself, they will respect us. And that respect will give us the ability to influence them. One of the, the chief ways we influence those in our sphere of influence and make an eternal difference is just by being a man or a woman of integrity. Thirdly, invest in the lives of others. Look at what Paul said in the, in the last of verse 3. Well, let me read all of verse 3 and then I'll emphasize the part. Do not say this to condemn, for I've said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul had an emotional investment in these people. He was vested in their lives. He, when he went to Corinth, he didn't just go and preach the gospel and move on down the road. While he was there, he invested in their lives. He made sure that he knew that he wanted to give them himself and not just the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is the way Paul lived his life. Look at what he told the people of Thessalonica. So affectionately longing for you that we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. See, when Paul went somewhere, whether he was there two months or two years, Paul did not remain emotionally distant from the people. Paul did not set himself apart from them. 
What he did was he invested in their lives. He became emotionally invested in them. And he became a part of their, he, he lived life with them. So that they would know he cared about them. So that they would know they were important to him. He goes on to the Thessalonians and he says, For what is our hope or our joy or our crown of rejoicing? Is it not you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Now I love that. Because right? here's what he's saying. When we all get to heaven, all that's going to matter are the people I've influenced for Jesus. Now, that's pretty significant because Paul wrote a majority of the New Testament. Paul planted, no telling how many churches. Paul did all kinds of really nifty miracles. And Paul said, when I stand before Jesus, I'm not going to be like, hey, look, I wrote the book of Thessalonians. Everybody high five me. Instead, when I stand before Jesus, all that's going to matter to me It's the fact that you're there too. That I have influenced you to believe in Jesus and you're here with me. I know it is difficult for us to see and think about eternity in this life because so much here and now presses on us. But I promise when we make it to heaven, our cars aren't going to matter. Our houses aren't going to matter. Our score on Super Mario Brothers is not going to matter. What's going to matter are the people we've helped get to heaven. The people that we have influenced for Jesus Christ so that they know Jesus and they are in heaven as well. But influence requires investment. Influence requires investment. And I think we know about this in other ways. I mean, right now we're in a Right, midterm election and all this kind of stuff's going on. I don't know how you guys are, but we are forever having politicians come by and give us flyers and want to talk to us. And I'm just going to be honest, for me personally, right? you may not have the same attitude I do, but for me personally, politician comes by my house, interrupts my day, and wants to tell me about his positions. I keep the flyer so I know who not to vote for on, on, on election day. Right? I don't want them coming by. They, no matter what he says, right, he wants something from me. He could care less about me personally. He could care less about what really is important to me, what I need, what I think is right. What he wants is for me to vote for him so that he can get what he needs. There's no investment. There's no influence. I'm not about to listen to anything they have to say. I'm, I'm really not. Now, of course, I don't like politicians in general, so you may not be as cynical about that as I am. But on a, on a different note, the same guy could come by and I'll be like, okay, whatever, bye. And I won't think about him again. But Scott's a friend. If Scott were to come by and then begin to tell me, this is why I think you should vote for that politician. I may not vote for him, but guess what I'll do? I'll listen. Because Scott's invested in my life. I know he cares about me. He doesn't want anything from me. He is invested in my life. We are friends And so he has a position, a platform to speak into my life about various things. This is why, like, just going up and talking to people, hey, do you know Jesus? It's not very effective. right? Because very rarely will we ever just walk up to someone and talk to them about Jesus, or even just invite them to church, and they just up and do it. Because 
We're not invested in their lives. They're not invested in ours. They don't care what we have to say. But if we invest in their lives, if we make ourselves to be a part of their lives and show them that we care about them, they'll listen. and It'll give us a platform to influence them. Right now, I do want to warn you. Investing in people's lives is hard. Because when you invest in someone's life, and you become emotionally bonded with them, and, and, and what goes on in their life matters to you, then their rejection of the gospel hurts. Their unwillingness to follow Jesus, it hurts. It, it, is, it is hard. By the same token, their accepting of Jesus is far sweeter. It's far better. Because you love them and now... They're eternally different because of what Jesus has done. The days of just randomly walking by and handing out flyers. Hey, come to church on Sunday. Hey, do you know Jesus Christ? I think those days are largely over. Instead, investment is what's where it's at. That's what we have to do. We have to be willing to come out of our comfort zones. We have to be willing to give up things in our life, and we have to be willing to invest in their lives, to take the time and the effort necessary to show them that we care. And as we do, we will be able to influence them and make an eternal difference in their lives. And then the final we want to genuinely love people, we want to live a life of integrity, invest in the lives of others, and then finally, See people for who Jesus could make them. Look at what Paul says at the very first of verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you. Now look at verse 4. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Filled with comfort. Exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Now, here's the thing. Paul has, between the first Corinthians letter and this Corinthians letter... Paul has dealt with them over some pretty serious issues. False teaching, sexual immorality, division in the church, abuse of spiritual gifts. You name a way that they could do something wrong and the Corinthian church did it. And what Paul says is, but I'm not trying to condemn you. That's not the point. Instead, I want you to know that I have great boldness about you. And what he's saying is, I expect you to make changes. I believe you can be different. I expect that you can be different than you are. Now, again, if you were to read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and see all the issues, I mean, it would be easy for Paul to just say, you people are terrible. What is wrong with you? I give up. That's not what he says. Instead, Paul's wording toward them is, I believe in you, man. I think the way you are is not the way you have to be. You can make changes. There is better for you than the way you currently are. I believe in you. And what Paul was doing was in a way kind of speaking vision into their lives. Right? He, he was painting a picture of something that could be better about them. And, and just letting them know that it, this is the way it should be. You don't have to follow the false teachers. You don't have to fall. And you don't have to make these mistakes. You can be better because of Jesus. Right? He was seeing them, not as the sinners that they were, 
but as the saints that God could make them to be. And Jesus did the exact same thing. Look at this story. I love this. Andrew meets Jesus. First thing he does, he finds his own brother Simon. And he says to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now, Jesus changing Peter's name is more than just like when we give someone a nickname. In the Bible, any time a name changed, it was usually something very, very significant. And it's the same here. Right? Peter's name was Simon. And it's from Simeon. One of, Ju- uh, one of Jacob's sons who was kind of, oh, I guess you'd say he was rash in his actions at times. Well, if you've read the Gospels, you know that that kind of sounds like Peter. Right? If there was ever a guy... To jump up and speak before he thought. And that was Peter. If there was ever an opportunity for someone to jump up and just blow it horribly by acting without thinking. I mean, it was Peter. Jesus says to Peter, says to him, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. Peter says, no way that's happening to you. He's telling Jesus, no, your plan's not happening. Jesus goes to wash the disciples' feet. Peter says, no way you're washing my feet. They come to arrest Jesus. Peter draws a sword and chops a dude's ear off. Peter was forever acting without thinking. But Jesus is going to make a change in Peter's life. And this change is going to be symbolic in his name. Instead of going from Simon, who was act without think, he would become Cephas, which basically means a rock. Peter is the Greek word for the Aramaic term. Same word, basically. And and impulsiveness would give up to steadfastness. Peter would become more than the guy who would think and then speak. Peter would become more than the guy who would say, I'll not deny you. And then just a few hours later, deny that he knew Jesus. He would become something different because Jesus would save him. Jesus would fill him with the Spirit. Jesus would transform him. In all of our spheres of influence... Chances are there are people we have just about given up on. And I don't mean that we don't love them. And I don't mean that our hearts don't ache over the decisions and the choices that they're making. And I don't mean that we want better. We don't want better for them. What I mean is we've just about decided. They're not ever changing. The way they are is the way they will. They've always been. It's the way they'll always be. Nothing will ever get any better. And I contend That the reason we give up on people is because we're depending on them. We want them to change. We want them to be different. We want them to do it. You know, the reality is, sinful people don't change until God begins to deal in their lives. Rather than putting our hope in them changing, we need to put our hope in God saving them. We need to put our hope in Jesus changing them. Uh, Too often, what we're doing is we are seeing them for the sinners that they are instead of the saints that Jesus could make them into. There has to come a a time where we can look beyond and see them for who they could be. When I first joined the army and went to Berlin, I I came from the National Guard. Um, I joined the National Guard at 17, was in the National Guard a few years, went on active duty. As a general rule... Regular army guys do not like National Guardsmen. 
When they come on active duty, they're treated as substandard soldiers and second rate. And my squad leader would have been just like everybody else if that's the way he'd have treated me. But instead, because when I went there, I really didn't know as much as I should have known for the rank that I held. When I went there, rather than treating me as the National Guardsman that was forced upon him, he began to kind of show me, here's the soldier you could be. Here's the leader you could be. Here's, here's what you could do. Let me help you. And he had a tremendous influence on me. By contrast, there was another squad leader in the same platoon. He was, he was a jerk. He had a guy in his squad that was a terrible soldier. And rather than saying, you can be better, here's what you could do. It was always, you're horrible. You're worthless. I hate having you in my squad. I think God hates me because you're here. I mean, and the guy that he hated never improved. He went from bad to worse to worse still. The difference wasn't the quality of the individual. The difference was the one who influenced them and the way they went about it. If our seeking to influence is you're a sinner and you're going to hell, you you ought to repent because I sure don't want to see you burn. It's not overly helpful. I mean, it's true. If it's, you're such a failure, you embarrass me, that's not overly helpful. It may be true, but it's not helpful. We need to see beyond the mistakes they're making, the sin they're choosing, and see them for what Jesus can turn them into when He saves them. And if we do that, we'll be able to make an eternal difference in their lives. Now, I, I, I would almost guarantee that every believer in here this morning wants to be a godly influence and wants to make an eternal difference in those that are part of our sphere of influence. But we look at these things, right? We, we look at genuinely loving people and we say, <laughs> uh, I really wrestle with that. Or we life of integrity and we know that we really want people to think higher of us than we are. Or invest in the lives of others. And we think, gosh, I'm, I'm really, deep down, I'm pretty selfish and I don't want to put forth that kind of effort. Or we're, we're, we look and we say, you know what, I'm actually kind of judgmental. And seeing them beyond what they are, that would be hard. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin to pray. Begin to pray for God to help you to be a godly influence that would make an eternal difference. And here are sp- four specific prayer requests. One, help me to love others as Jesus loves me. I'd help me to love others as Jesus loves me. Listen, to love others as Jesus loves us, you can't just turn that switch and make it happen. God has to do it. But you have to want to be able to love that way. You have to want to love people that way. And I'm convinced if we seek Him and say, Lord, I really want to love people this way, He'll produce that kind of love in us. Secondly, keep me from hypocrisy. Right? Both keep me from being a, a sinner who tries to cover it up and keep me from trying to put on airs. God, help me to just be who I am and not try to impress people. Just keep me from hypocrisy. Make me selfless instead of selfish. Make me selfless instead of selfish. And then let me see people as Jesus sees them. Listen, I think all of these are acts of divine grace. I don't know that we can just... Poof, turn on a switch for any of these. 
But I do believe that each one of these are things God wants in our lives. He certainly wants us to love as Jesus has loved. He certainly does not want us to be hypocrites. He, he certainly expects us to be selfless like Jesus. He certainly wants us to look beyond sin and see the souls and see the people. So if we begin to pray these and we want these, I believe God will make these changes in our lives. I want to close the story about someone who made a godly influence and made an eternal difference. Her name was Ruby Hudson. And she was the, the daughter of a Pentecostal preacher. She was raised in a good home, godly parents. But like a lot of young girls, she fell in love with a, a bad boy. And this bad boy came from an outlaw family, and his name was Roy. And when I say he was from an outlaw family, I mean they were legitimate outlaws. The men in this family did not die of old age and natural causes. They died from gunshot wounds because they were in gunfights. They died from being stabbed to death in a fight down by the river. They were hung by the law. They, they died badly. And, and the women <laughs> weren't really any different. They were just as much outlaws as the men were. The, these, this family, they gambled, they drank, they fought, they robbed banks, they beat people up. And occasionally, some of them killed people. And Roy was not like the dude with a heart of gold in the outlaw family. He was every bit the outlaw the rest of his family was. Once when he was serving time in the county jail, he was playing checkers with a guy in the cell next to him. And for some reason, he got angry at that guy. And he grabbed him by the head and he pulled his head up against the cell between the bars and he bit his ear off. It's the kind of guy he was. But Ruby fell in love with Roy. And what I would have to imagine would be over the objections of her dad. She married him anyway. But Ruby understood the words from, that God had spoke to Jeremiah. You influence them and don't let them influence you. And so she determined she would be a good influence on this outlaw family. And her kids would not be like the rest of, of this family. Together, Ruby and Roy had eight kids. Ruby insisted that the kids be raised in church. And so the boys were raised in church until they were about 14 or 15, in which time Roy determined that they needed to go work in the field rather than go to church with the women. And the girls were raised in church always. And while the boys were not raised in church always, they remembered what they'd been taught. And in varying degrees, they raised their kids in church. And they all grew up to be productive members of society. One of the sons, Roy was his name in fact, became a very respected lawman in the same community where his family had been outlaws so many years before. The daughters were all raised in church, and by and large, they all raised their children in church. And, and today, this family, they are far from being outlaws. Most of this family are now Christians. Not all of them, but most of them. And all of Roy and Ruby's kids have died except one. The seven that died, largely lived for the Lord up to the day of their death. The one that's still alive still lives for the Lord every day of her life. Roy and Ruby's grandkids, most of them live for Jesus. Most of their great-grandkids are living for Jesus. And there's even several great-great-grandkids who are living for Jesus. In fact, just earlier this year, one of her great-great-grandkids preached his first sermon at a church 
down in the community where they grew up at. The difference between what that family was then and what that family is now is Ruby. It was her determination to be a godly influence and make an eternal difference in her family. Ruby was my grandmother. She was the first person to ever share the gospel with me and tell me I needed to call on Jesus to save me. She is a, was a huge influence in my life. And a huge part of who I am today is because of the godly influence that she had upon me. And my granny is one of the ways I know that one godly influence can make an eternal difference. Who knows what lasting impact you can have on those around you if you determine you'll be a godly influence and seek to make an eternal difference. Let's stand as our musicians come.